Good morning, everyone. I've been just a little bit under the weather this week. I had a little bit of a cough and a little bit of congestion, no fever or anything bad, but I'm, uh, if you want to greet me today, I won't give you the customary hug. I'll give you a fist pump, but uh, it's just for your own good. Um, but I do feel uh, fine. I just know my voice is a little, uh, a little less than usual. Uh, that's kind of mean, Aaron, to do songs like that when I can't sing, but... Um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, <clears throat> we're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh. I wanted to start out asking you a question. What makes you angry? For most of us, I think anger comes when something harms us or bothers us intensely. Maybe somebody's especially rude to us or treats us dismissively or cruelly or maybe they cut us off in traffic or maybe uh, the unforgivable sin of being uh, on their phone when they're in front of you and the light turns green. I would guess most of us get angry when things don't go our way. When we're somehow hurt or disappointed and our expectations either of others or life in general aren't met by what's happening around us. The Bible talks often of God being angry, of his wrath. Have you ever wondered what makes God angry? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. I've titled the message, What Makes God Angry? And we're in John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. We've, had, uh, we've been looking through this chapter and the earlier verses, the story of uh, this family that's friends of, of Jesus's, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Apparently they all live together. There's no mention of parents. There's no mention of spouses. So it looks like the three of them live together and Lazarus falls ill. And Mary and Martha send word to Jesus to come. Well, they just let him know. The one you love is sick, with the expectation being Jesus will run right back and heal him because he's healed so many others uh, on so many occasions. But Jesus deliberately stays two more days where he is. And then he tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead. Now we can go. And they head out, and by the time they get there, Lazarus has been dead four days. So we, we looked at Martha's encounter with Jesus. She runs up to him, and Jesus has a really uh, great teaching moment with her and reminds her of the big picture of things. Yes, Lazarus just died, but what I have come to offer is life eternal, and to know me and to believe in me means that nothing can take life away from you. I am the resurrection and the life. Nobody can take that from you, and death itself can't do that and he turns to Martha do you believe this <coughs> Martha says yeah yeah I believe this I know that you're who you say you are. I know you're not only the Christ you are the son of God I know that you are the one that the father has sent into the cosmos to fix everything that's broken that's Martha's encounter with Jesus. Now we're going to look at Mary's encounter with Jesus. And Jesus is going to be teaching Mary some things as well, but it's not going to be quite as didactic as his encounter with Martha. Jesus actually spoke some words of teaching to Martha. With Mary, it's going to be more the way most of the Bible teaches us, through narrative. 
He's going to communicate whether through actions, and we're going to interpret what's going on based on these actions. And it's very interesting in this account that even though John gives us some insight into what's going on inside Jesus' heart and mind, he never explains it. He never unravels it for us. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I think that catches us up. Uh, let's go ahead and start here in verse 28. And having said this, and we're talking about Martha here. Having said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling you. So when she heard it, she rose up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but remained in the place where Martha had met him. Therefore the Jews, the ones who were with her in the house and were consoling her, seeing that Mary got up quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she is going to the tomb to weep there. So Mary, when she came to where Jesus was, seeing him, fell to his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died couple of interesting things in these verses. The first is uh, that when Martha calls Mary, uh, she finds her in private, uh, which means that she might have been hoping that Mary would have an opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one moment with Jesus the way she just had, uh, but it doesn't end up working out that way. But also, she says, the teacher is here and he is calling you. That, that term, teacher, uh, is very interesting because in the first century, rabbis did not take female disciples on. Rabbis did not train women. They only trained men. It was a, an extremely patriarchal society, and it wasn't considered appropriate for a rabbi to be teaching women. But Jesus did. And uh, Mar Mary and Martha know him not just as some random rabbi, but as their teacher. Uh, we know the story from Luke chapter 10 where Jesus came to visit Mary and Martha and uh, we see the very different personalities, right? Martha is the consummate host and she is running herself ragged, running everywhere and making sure everything is available for Jesus and the disciples and she's serving her guests as a great host would do. But since Jesus walked in the door, Mary just sat down at his feet and she's just sitting there soaking it in. And Martha turns to Jesus, Jesus, tell Mary to get up and help me. She's just sitting there. I'm doing all the work. And uh, Jesus had some words of teaching for Martha on that occasion. He said, Martha, Martha, you're, you're so worried about so many things. But you know, there's only one thing that you really need. And that's what Mary chose. So I'm not going to take it from her. I think Martha has learned that because the minute she hears Jesus is drawing near, uh, she leaves behind the people who are at the house and runs out to meet Jesus. She almost behaves more like you would expect Mary to, to the point that she even seems to forget to mention to Mary that Jesus is here. Um, Maybe she's learned something along the way. But uh, they both have been learning from Jesus so Mary, as soon as she hears it, jumps up and runs out to find him. And of course, there are Jews there who are consoling her. And the Jewish custom, they really knew how to mourn. Uh, they weren't uh, like some of us. Uh, I guess it's maybe Anglo culture. We have this very detached 
uh, approach to things and we think it's unseemly to be very emotional about loss and uh, there's something kind of embarrassing about people weeping. Um, so we tend to kind of downplay it and encourage people to put a smile on. And, but the Jews weren't that way at all. When, when they had a funeral, it, it, they would spend seven days not just mourning and saying, boy, I'm sad, but they would actually wail out loud uh, and make a big uh, show of just how heartbroken they are at the loss of the person. They, some families would even hire professional mourners who would uh, give voice to mourning and wailing and make sure the world knew of the loss. Uh, there's something I think very healthy about that. So when the Jews who are there with her think she's going to the tomb to wail, and that's kind of the term used there. When they talk about Mary and the other people mourning or, or weeping, uh, it's, it's the word for wailing, uh, this kind of very loud lamentation that was common in their culture. So they think, okay, well, she's going to wail at the tomb, and we'll go and support her there. But, of course, she's run to meet Jesus. And I love uh, how her actions speak so loudly. The first thing she does when she sees him is fall to his feet. What an image. Uh, it seems like she loves, to, she loves that spot, right? Being at Jesus' feet. And, and she says to him something very similar to what Martha first said. Lord, if you had been here, I know my brother would never have died. And there's a, perhaps a bit of reproach there, but there's also a tremendous sense of trust and knowing, I know that you have the power to heal, and I know that if you had been here, you love him and you would have healed him. I'm confident that you would have intervened. Um, and she's expressing her sorrow that Jesus didn't make it in time. I think Mary also has this kind of complaint that Jesus did not intervene in time to save Lazarus' life. I wonder if we think about this. How, how have we felt when God hasn't done what we expected of, of him when we expected it? Sometimes God doesn't quite do what we expect when we expect it. Let's keep reading verse 33. So when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he was deeply angered in his spirit, and he stirred himself up. Many modern translations here don't say that he was angered. They say something like he was deeply moved uh, in his spirit. But I was looking through this as I was translating it, and uh, what I found in the, in the dictionaries, the Greek dictionaries, is that that's really not the sense of that Greek word. The Greek word, etymologically, the root of it has the meaning of a horse snorting. And it's this idea of, of anger, of, of rage. Uh, and and uh, the reason I think many translations uh, soften it is that it just doesn't seem appropriate. Why would you be angry at a funeral? Uh, and certainly Mary... Uh, her expression of trust that he could have healed him and would have done it if he had been here in time isn't really, I don't think, something that would call for anger from Jesus, nor would the fact that all these other Jews have seen fit to 
come and visit and, and try to console and share in her mourning? Surely that's not something that would make Jesus angry, the communal attempts at consolation. But this isn't just that he's deeply angered in his spirit, but he stirs himself up. He kind of fans the flame of his own anger. What's going on here? I wish John had seen fit to explain what exactly this means, why Jesus was feeling this way. And I think, uh, I think what we see here is Jesus' response to sin and death. I think this whole situation is Jesus coming face to face with kind of the ultimate end play of sin, right? What is the final wage paid out by sin? Death. And sin is destruction. Sin is entropy and devastation and death ultimately. And Jesus has just been telling Martha, I am life itself. What greater offense is there to him who is life itself than to be staring death in the face. And you know that every single human being who has ever lived, lives only because Jesus brought us into life, because Jesus shared life with us. The breath of life is in our lungs because of his giving. What greater offense is there to the one who is life than the ultimate robbing of life from the creatures he created in his own image and likeness. Jesus created every one of us, and he were, he, we were created, we were told in Colossians 1, we were not only created by him, and nothing that exists exists except that Jesus created it, but we were not only created by him, and we are sustained by him, but we were created for him. And for sin and death to step in the middle of that, and cut it short and bring the devastation and the heart-rending separations that occur every time a funeral takes place. That angers Jesus. That's why he came here. Because of what sin has done to this creation. And he's deeply angered and he stirs himself up and he grits his teeth and he squares his jaw and he stares death in the face and he says, I'm coming for you. I'm going to take death's neck and wring that scrawny little neck. I am going to murder death. I'm done with sin and death and I am going to obliterate them at the cross. Jesus is furious about it. And he's going to fix it. He's going to wipe that silly grin once and forever off of the grave's face. John tells us that Lazarus' death and the pain it had caused to Mary and Martha and their friends filled Jesus with anger. I want you to think about that. Why does that make Jesus so angry? Keep reading verse 34. And he said, where have you put him? They told him, Lord, come and see. Jesus burst into tears. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. This seems an odd follow-up. Jesus is 
so angry and he's stirring himself up. He asks where they put him. They show him, here's the tomb. And as, he, uh, as all of this is happening, all of a sudden Jesus bursts into tears. Now, the word used here in the Greek is not the same one for the weeping. I said that was kind of the word for wailing and loud lamentation. This is just shedding tears. And uh, from what I was able to see, uh, the, the Greek dictionary I was looking in said it, it has the idea of an ingressive errorist. So it's more like he burst into tears. He suddenly, the tears just started to flow. And I think the Jews who are observing get this right. See how he loved him. Now Jesus well, maybe they misunderstand slightly. I don't think Jesus is crying for Lazarus because he knows what he's about to do. For him, the moment of separation is minimal. Uh, it's just been a couple of days and it's just going to be a moment longer before he's with Lazarus again. But he's weeping for Mary and Martha and everybody else that's there because he knows how deeply it hurts. And he burst into tears. I think that's significant. I've said this before. As a pastor, I've probably been around more funerals than the average person. And uh, something, uh, some people hate funerals. I don't know anybody who really enjoys them. They're not particularly fun, but they're, they're important. Um, but... Uh, when we're at a funeral, sometimes people don't want to go to a funeral because they don't know what to do, what to say. And how do, you, how do you comfort, how do you help somebody in this horrible moment of loss and separation? Death is such a horrendous thing. We spend our whole lives pretending it doesn't exist. Pretending it doesn't loom on the horizon of my own life. It's like it's not there. But when we are at a funeral, we can't pretend, okay? It's happened, and there's this big gaping hole where there used to be a person we all loved. What do we do? Well, we can do what Jesus did with Martha there originally. We can speak the truth of Scripture. Jesus is resurrection and life. If we believe in him, not even death itself can rob us of life. That is an absolute truth and we need to speak that truth to one another. Especially in funerals, especially in moments of loss and separation because separation, a temporal as opposed to eternal, is a huge difference. A brief separation is much more bearable than lost forever. But you know what? I think sometimes as Christians, we don't do it right. We just speak the truth of Scripture and let it go at that. And we kind of, the assumption is, the underlying assumption is, okay, well, now that you know the truth, get over it. Now that I've told you your resurrection hope, then stop your blubbering. We're done. We've got this uh, truth to solve the whole thing for you. That's not what Jesus does. Yes, he speaks the truth, but he can't help it. He bursts into tears. He shares in their pain.
pain. If you're going to comfort anybody, don't just speak the truths of the Christian faith to them. You weep with them. You share their pain with them. That's how we comfort one another in Christ. The way he comforted those he loved in his ministry. And yes, he loved them. And that is why he is moved to tears. Jesus is overcome with emotion at Mary's tears. And he himself bursts into tears. I want you to consider that. What difference does it make to know that what hurts me hurts God too? That God's not indifferent to my suffering. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not this one who opened the eyes of the blind man also make it so that this one would not have died? You know, even at a funeral of a close friend, Jesus can't get away from his critics. They hound him. And he's here mourning at a friend's funeral, but already there are people second-guessing him. Well, couldn't this guy who opened the eyes of that guy who was born blind, I mean, wow, that's spectacular, but couldn't he have showed up a little sooner and made sure this guy didn't die? These guys just said, see how he loved him. And they're kind of saying, well, must not have loved him that much because he didn't come. He didn't heal him. He didn't intervene in time. He didn't fix the situation in time. He showed up too late. I think the modern atheist movement is filled with this kind of critic. People who look at God and say, you know, God should have done it this other way. And they have such uh, inflated egos that they speculate, if I were God, this is how I'd be doing it. This is how the universe would look if I were God. If I had all power and were benevolent and good and omnipotent and omniscient and omnibenevolent and all the things we say about God, then I would do it so different. There wouldn't be any of this bad stuff. And everybody has their own version of this, but uh, there are constant critics of God who think they have a better idea of how God should have done things. And with Jesus, obviously, that happens. Despite all the good Jesus has done, there's always people who How do you think people still do that today when we talk about Jesus? Verse 38, so Jesus again, deeply angered within, comes to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone lay over it. Jesus says, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the one who had died, says to him, Lord, he stinks already for it is the fourth day. Jesus tells her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory? So again, Jesus heads to the tomb. Again, he's deeply angered. This whole thing just is an insult to him as the giver of life. 
and we're described, apparently the, this family was well-to-do because this is the more kind of expensive uh, type of uh, burial place. It's a carved out cave, sometimes natural, but normally they'd be carved out and they roll a stone over the entryway. You've seen a lot of drawings or representations of it. Uh, and he says, roll back the stone. Now the practice was you would, uh, there would be kind of a slab there in the tomb and you would lay out the dead body on the slab and you would wrap it in strips of linen cloth and uh, then you would let it, you, they didn't embalm, they just wrapped it in these linen cloths and let it decay. And then they would come back maybe a year later once the body had decayed and they would take the bones and put them in a little box called an ossuary and they would slide that box into a, a groove in the wall and, and they'd start kind of stacking uh, the bones in different ossuaries. So he's lying there and they're just, waiting for him to decompose. And clearly, by the fourth day, it's springtime, no refrigeration, no embalming fluids of any kind. By the fourth day, you're going to start to notice something. I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of discovering a dead rat or mouse somewhere in your house. You know, you're just going about your business, and all of a sudden you walk into a room and say, something is not right in here. And then you start moving furniture until you find the culprit and there it is, a dead mouse or something. Well, that's an animal this big. Imagine what happens with a whole human body. And Martha warns him, Jesus, it's been four days, it's springtime. Nobody wants to smell that. Jesus says, didn't I tell you? that if you believe, you will see God's glory. Of course, Martha had understood Jesus to be speaking eschatologically. End times hope of resurrection and the consummation of the kingdom of God, that final day when all the dead rise and we all give an account of ourselves to our creator and those who belong to Jesus enter into life eternal. She was on board with that. Yes, that is true. I believe it and that secures my present. But Jesus is going to do something out of the ordinary for Martha. He is actually going to uh, demonstrate to her that he can do what he's promising he can do. That he can bring death back into life. Now, we, we know enough about medicine that if somebody, uh, somebody's heart stops beating, if we abuse the body the right way, we might can get that heart ticking again, you know? You, you do some certain things to it and boom, it, it'll kind of kick back. You can kind of jump start it. But you give a body four days of decaying and there's no coming back from that. You're gone. Jesus did the most spectacular raising of a dead person for Mary and Martha. There were a couple of instances only two others. Uh, but it wasn't like this. It wasn't four full days. And Jesus wants his disciples to know when he talks about resurrection, he's not being metaphorical. He's not talking about feeling some uh, new uh, outlook on life and some kind of uh, deeper understanding. And uh, No, he literally means that the dead will be raised to life immortal. 
This is a sign that he has the power to do what he's promising, that he really is the resurrection and the life. And the key to being a participant in these things is faith. If we put our trust in Jesus, we will see God's glory. Martha seems to have come to grips with Lazarus' death, but Jesus is about to blow her mind. How have you experienced God doing that kind of thing? His unexpected generosity and goodness out of the blue in your own life. I've had God do things like that in my life. Let's finish uh, the passage. Verse 41. So they removed the stone. Now Jesus lifted his eyes upward and said, Father, I thank you because you have heard me. I had known that you always hear me, but on account of the crowd that is standing around, I spoke, so that they may believe that you sent me. And having said these things, he called out in a loud loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The one who had died came out, his feet and hands bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus tells them, unbind him and let him go. Before Jesus raises Lazarus, he stops before the tomb, raises his hands to heaven, lifts his eyes, I'm sorry, to heaven, and addresses God the Father. Throughout his whole ministry, this has been the big fight. We've been observing it in the previous chapters between those who reject Jesus and and say he's not legitimate and Jesus' own claims, I am the one the Father has sent into the cosmos. I am not only the Messiah, I am the Son of God. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the cosmos. I can give water of life to any who come and ask. All these things he's been saying. And then when people say, you can't do all that stuff, Jesus says, listen, look at the things I'm doing I am doing the works of God the Father. I'm doing the kinds of things that only God Almighty can accomplish. For example, let me take this man born blind and return his sight to him to show you that I truly am the light of the world. Let me take a little bit of bread and a couple of fishes and let me feed a multitude of more than 5,000 to show to you that I am the bread of life. Let me do things that only God can do so that you can believe the outrageous claims I am making. If you don't believe in me, then believe because of the works. Because only God can do these things. Now, if Jesus were a charlatan or if, as his enemies try to suggest, if he were working under the power of Satan, maybe he could, maybe Satan is able to uh, somehow... uh, Make bread multiply or, or restore health to somebody. But as far as I know, Satan does not have the power to grant life. In the Bible, we are told that that is a gift that comes from God, that everything that lives, lives because of the breath of life which God has breathed into it. Satan has no power to bring life where there is death. So before he raises Lazarus, Jesus says, Father, 
thanks for hearing me. And you know, I know, you know, you always hear me. I'm just saying this out loud so that all the other people here will get it. That what I'm about to do is the finger of God at work among them. That this is yet another work of the Father. Now if Jesus were a charlatan or a deceiver or a demoniac, there is no way God Almighty would have breathed life back into Lazarus in response to his prayer. There's no way. And Jesus assures that people get that by explicitly saying, Father, do this before he does it. And then he calls to Lazarus. And how he comes, and he must have waddled out because he's still bound up. But he gets out. And I love this final phrase here, unbind him and let him go. I think that's a great description of what Jesus is trying to do for all of us. Sin has us tied up and death seems to have the final say and final control over our existence. And Jesus is saying, no, I am going to intervene to speak life back into. Release. Freedom. From the power of sin and death. When he raised Lazarus, Jesus proved that he was God come to us to rescue us and offer eternal life. I guess the big question is, have you trusted in Jesus for this life? And how has this choice affected your life? God cares if he didn't care, none of us would be here. If he didn't care, way back in the days of Noah, when God said, you know, this is so bad, I regret ever having created humankind, he would have just wiped us all off the face of the earth, and there would be no human race. But he loves us, and he chose to intervene. And he's been intervening time and time again to put limits to our evil, to bring down wicked empires throughout human history, to frustrate grand schemes for world dominance. Nobody's ever succeeded in doing what they wanted. Our sin is broken creation. And as Jesus stood there staring death in the face, surrounded by lives shattered by the ultimate effects of sin, Jesus was sad. He burst into tears. He shares our pain, but sadness is not the only thing he feels. He was furious. He gritted his teeth and redoubled his resolve to murder death and be done with it once for all, to rescue us all from its power eternally. And to prove to us that he could do this, he raised Lazarus. A dead man, four days decaying, he brought back fully to life. Have you believed in him for this gift of life and victory over sin. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you.
that our plight angers you on our behalf. That you love us and you want to redeem us even though we are the ones who are wrecking the world. We are the wicked ones who are doing the things that are reprehensible. And yet your response is to hate the sin that is destroying this world, but come in love to rescue us from it. Jesus, help us to have hearts turned to you, to trust our hearts to you, and to allow you to unbind us and to release us, to grant us share in your victory over sin and death. Help us to trust our hearts to you. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.